And she's still coming. Oh. Where do you think she? Oh, okay. What weapon? Just not here. I'm like, if you can't handle this, we don't belong here. What weapon? What weapon? Okay. All right. So where are the rest of you? I got several. What? I got several people saying that. Uh, they had what's called the Irish flu, which is when the Patriots win the Super Bowl. Um, you call in sick, and it's Irish because it's Boston. Um, of course. Um, okay, let me see. Actually, I can't see people against the bright light. We should. Can you? Um, can you turn the lights on? Thank you. Um, so, anything interesting happened last night? Did people watch the game? Halftime. What? Did, did anything interesting happen? That was really hardly interesting. It was very bad, but it was like... It was more fun to like laugh at it. Like the dances Adam Levine was trying to do. Here's the issue. They have this whole like, political thing where they couldn't find anyone to play the Super Bowl halftime show because of like, the Colin Kaepernick football. And then Maroon 5 like, didn't do the press conference like beforehand. And people thought that they like, hopped out because they didn't want to explain why they chose to perform and no one else did. <laughs> it's like the Oscars, but sports ball. And then nobody oh. addressed it except for one commercial like before the Super Bowl started. That was like... We met with these community members. I was like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Joseph, you're here. Um, Abigail. Yes. Um, Noah. Uh, Nicole is not here. Um, Connie. Um, Emma. Uh, Ian is not here. Jimmy, yes, you're here. Um, Aria. Nope. Um, Prue, yes. Um, Darhan, um, Andrea, um, Onur, um, Gabby, uh, Lin Fei, oh, Nicole, Lin Fei, um, and Angela. Um, okay, uh, those of you who did watch the game, um, the, there was this game yesterday that had, like, <laughs> frying pans and three things in it or something. Um, there's a football game yesterday. And um, the last, uh, like, three minutes were actually exciting. Um, I mean, low-scoring games are always exciting, in my opinion, but a lot of people don't agree. Um, but the last three or four minutes were exciting from the Rams for those of you who don't know, there's a football game. It was for the <laughs> World Championship of Football. Um, it was called the Superb Owl. Um, yes. It's spell correct. The spell check. Yes. Yeah. It's a superb owl. Actually, there was a birding column that was published this weekend in a local newspaper, and it was about citing the superb owl. Um, so... Um, but football is an interesting game for game theory. Um, not all games are interesting for game theory. Like tic-tac-toe is not that interesting for game theory. Um, but football is. And one of the things that happened in the last few minutes um, was that um, it looked like the Rams might be able to tie it up. 
Um, but then uh, the Patriots had an interception. And now it was the clock versus the score, which is always what happens at the end of football games. That's why it's always the case. Football is constructed so the last five minutes will um, usually, are most likely to be the most exciting five minutes. Um, and just what happens in the last five minutes is usually the most exciting plays because one team is defending, which means they tend to defend too much. Um, and they don't take chances, and the other team is attacking, so they do take chances, right? Is this, for anyone who's watched football, you know that's true. People know about the famous Heidi game? The famous Heidi game? Like the girl Heidi? Like the girl Heidi, yeah. Just Google it. Heidi game, very famous uh, television fail from the, I think, late 60s or early 70s. H-E-I-D-I, like, like the character, the literary character. Space game. So it must be on Wikipedia. Yeah, it's on Wikipedia. Okay, so what happened was they were showing um, a, a game. I, th I forget who was playing the Jets and the Rams. I don't know. Raiders. Jets and the Raiders? Yeah. Okay, so the Jets and some California team, they're all like. Um, and um, there were. I think 61 seconds left or something. It might have been less, but it was also NBC was showing. I'm getting all of the details wrong, but essentially right. NBC was showing on like their Hallmark movie series, Heidi, the movie. And the game was got past where, or was just got to the place where Heidi was supposed to start. And um, the Jets were up by two touchdowns. Um, with 61 seconds left, so they cut to the movie. Right? Is that how many seconds left? God, here's a, here's a person who's actually being encouraged to go on Wikipedia in class. What do you find? Is it not saying? It's saying final minute. Yeah, final minute, but I think it was actually <laughs> 61 seconds. There are some big Oh, who cares about that? All right. They made a stupid decision, which is they went to Heidi. One team was clearly, clearly, clearly going to win. And while everyone was watching Heidi, the other team won. Um, and uh, so they never did that again um, because it was, it was a complete disaster, such a disaster that it has own, its own Wikipedia um, page. And um, I'm sure a much vandalized Wikipedia page. Uh, so which... Actually, in my life, this caused me some consternation because I wanted to watch Flipper one evening, but there was a football game on instead. And I couldn't believe it because Flipper, it was Sunday night. I was like six, and it was Flipper, which is about the clever dolphin named Flipper. There was a movie. I learned, actually, this weekend I learned um, an interesting musical fact which is that dolphins can tell the same melody when you change its key. So if you play, um, you know, Mary Had a Little Lamb in the key of C, um, we can all tell it's also Mary Had a Little Lamb if you do it in G or whatever. Um, dolphins can also. They can tell melodies when the keys change, <laughs> when the keys change but starlings can't. So starlings can, um, if you change the key that a melody is played in, a starling can recognize a melody. Um, you can teach a starling to recognize a melody, but if you change its key, the starling won't hear it as the same melody. So dolphins are cleverer than starlings, or maybe not. Maybe it's the other way around. Starlings, starlings have perfect pitch. Yes, yeah, starlings have perfect pitch. Dolphins don't. 
And if you have perfect pitch, it means it's just not the same thing. Um, if it's in a different key, it's just different. I mean, why would you think it was the same thing? Um, so, so that's what I learned this weekend. Well, you guys were wasting your time watching the Super Bowl. Anyhow, um, with about three minutes left in this game, the Patriots got an immense but by no means um, uh, over, un, un overcomable advantage when they intercepted the ball. And they, it was then um, the Rams had some decisions to make. And what they really, really wanted to do was to get the football back so that they could try to tie the game. And so what that would require them to do was prevent the Patriots from scoring because they didn't want to be more than one touchdown behind the Patriots because with a touchdown they could tie the game. So the Patriots are marching up the field with uh, ridiculous running um, games and the Rams are just totally collapsing. Um, but then the Patriots get called for, do you guys remember this? They got called for two penalties on a single play. So it was uh, first and um, 10 and on the play they made like uh, seven yards, I think, six yards. Correct me if I'm wrong about this, but it was seven or six yards, six or seven yards. And um, there was, I think, a face masking and a holding penalty against the Patriots on that, which meant that they would lose 10 yards um, and it would be, they would play the play over again, but now it would be first and 20. And the Rams declined both penalties. That is, they let the Patriots get the seven yards and the reason, does anyone know why they did it? Why'd they do it? Because um, when, the, when you decline a penalty, but like a flag is thrown, the clock stops and then starts on the snap of the ball. Mm -hmm. And they're approaching the two-minute warning when the clock stops anyways. And I think they didn't have all three timeouts. I think they had only two. I think they only had one then. Or they, yeah, they only had one timeout. So they basically could use it as like a fake timeout. Right. Because the clock was going to stop. And they also didn't want the Patriots to have four plays. By declining the penalty, the Patriots got ground. They were closer to the Rams' end zone. But now it was second down. Do people know what downs are? Is there anyone who doesn't? So it was sec you don't know? So in football, you have four plays to make 10 yards. And if you don't make the 10 yards, you um, give the ball to the other team. And usually on the fourth play, um, the play you make is a, is a kick of some sort so that the other team will, you're not risking losing the ball there, but you're getting the ball down the field and the other team gets the ball um, on, the, on, on their side of the field. So that kick, if, it's a, if you do that, if, um, it's called a punt. Um, so four plays to make 10 yards, they, the penalty meant that the Patriots would now have four plays to make 20 yards. And the Rams decided they would rather, because time was running out, have the Patriots only have three plays, even though they would only have to make uh, four or five yards. So the idea was that if they were going to win, it's because they were going to get the ball back sooner rather than later. And cutting down on the number of plays was more important to them than cutting down on the yardage that the Patriots had made. So in almost all cases, what you would do is you would take a 10-yard penalty, even though it would give the other team one more play, because now they have four plays to make 20 yards. Um, but in this case, they didn't take the penalty. They wanted to eat up the play, even though the Patriots now had three plays to make four yards or something like that. 
So that was a game theoretical consideration. The reason I'm bringing it up is that what they were doing was they were looking at expected utility of taking the penalty, which was a, a, an award given to them, versus not taking the penalty and seeing the, which they thought was slightly higher expected utility because the utility of winning the game is infinite. And this, you don't have to call it infinite. You can just call it, uh, you can give it a thousand points or something like that. The utility of winning the game is a thousand, and the utility of getting those 10 yards is very little, but then with very little time left, those 10 yards become even less. The result was that the Patriots kicked a field goal. So had they maybe taken the penalty, the Patriots wouldn't, um, might not have gotten into field goal range, and uh, the Rams would have had a chance to tie it with a touchdown. However, the Patriots kicked a field goal, so now um, they were ahead by 10 points, which means the Rams would have to score twice in order to tie the game. And with almost no time left, the Rams would have to score twice to tie the game. So... What they did was, with something like eight seconds left, they, the Rams were in a position where they're still down by 10 points. They have eight seconds left. And instead of going for a touchdown on what would have been one of the last plays of the game, maybe one of the last two, they went for a field goal. So they were down, and that was a brilliant move. It didn't work, but it was brilliant. Um, because anyone know why they went for a field goal instead of a touchdown? Yeah. Because they could score a field goal and then they could try for an onside kick on the kickoff, which means they kick the ball short enough that they hope their team can recover it and then they would have one chance to throw like one last Hail Mary for a touchdown. Right. So by going for a field goal, they, if they get the field goal, they would have scored three points. Now they're down by seven. But it doesn't matter whether they're down by seven or down by three with a single play left. In fact, it's better if there's only one play left to be down by seven than to be down by three. Eh, it may not be better because you could, you could win if you're down by three instead of just tying. But at any rate, they by kicking a field goal, they knew that if they scored, they would um, be able then to kick the ball to the other team, which is what happens um, when the ball changes sides. If they'd scored the field goal, they'd be down by seven. They can then do what's called an onside kick, which is, again, a very risky thing to do and is only done by a team which is down with very little time left. And what an onside kick is, is it's a kick where the football just goes um, tumbling <coughs> across the field. It's not kicked into the air. It's um, kicked like a soccer ball, so it's rolling, except footballs don't roll. Um, so it's kind of jittering across the field. And the idea is that if someone on the other team can't handle the ball, if the other team touches the ball and they can't handle it, then if your team grabs the ball, it's your play. You have the ball wherever your team has grabbed it. And um, that would have then given them one play with eight seconds left to try to score. So none of it worked. And, um, but, had it, but they played the cards as well as the cards that they were dealt in the last three minutes as well as they could be played. They um, took the 
only route towards victory. It didn't get them there, but it was the only one that could have done it. And it, what it was was game theory. It, what it was was looking at the different possibilities, different branching possible outcomes, and the odds of those outcomes. And the odds were really strong against any outcome that was good for the Rams, but they picked the odds that were not intuitive. They weren't what people would think about doing if they weren't thinking, which is, of course, take the penalty. Of course, try to get the seven points instead of the three points. But what they did was they declined the two penalties, and they went for the three points instead of the seven, and that was the only way they could possibly win. And they didn't, but it was still a really good uh, example of the kinds of things you have to think about in game theory, which is something we'll be talking about a little bit later in this course. So you had a so I hope you guys watch the game. It'll be on the exam, and so it's important that you watch it. Uh, I guess I didn't put it on the syllabus, but tough. No, but that, anyhow, this is important. I mean, the game theory part is important. The game is of no interest whatever, um, except as um, an exposition of game theory. Okay, shall we look at the, let's just look at the end of Aristotle and then look at the Kawabata story. I'm still working on the syllabus, which you have through, I gave you through vacation. Um, I'm thinking it's longish, and I'm trying to think of stuff that I can cut from it. So uh, that's probably a good thing. Okay, so what we were looking at at the end of class last time was the three different functions of money, which are essentially in Aristotle. There are, there are more functions of money than that, but those are the ones that everyone recognizes. And... Adam Smith, as you'll see, makes it explicit, but they're already essentially in Aristotle. Which are what, anyone? Function of money? Exchange. Medium of exchange, yeah. Household management? Well, it, um, money itself is not household management. So the medium of exchange for something that you can use to manage your household, yes. But money does very little good within a household. Uh, you can use it, you know, you can use a dime to unscrew or screw something if you don't have a screwdriver. You can possibly use it if you, back in the, back in the days of phonographs, uh, phono, do you guys know, like, how they work? With a needle. That's right, because vinyl is back, right? So needles used to destroy records, used to destroy vinyl. And the reason is that they were sharp and usually diamond-tipped. If you The highest quality needles, which pretty much everyone had, were diamond-tipped. Do you know this? And they would, every time you played a record, the high frequencies on the record would be eroded by the needle that was going through the groove, vibrating to a little high-frequency uh, a little high frequency vinyl that was... Uh, just projecting out a tiny little bit, which is the higher frequency, and eventually the frequencies get lost. And so what really high-fi, high high-fidelity phonographs did was they tried to make the tone arm as light as possible, because the heavier the tone arm, the more destruction is done to the record each time you play it. So you try to make the tone arm as light as possible. It's as though on a CD, 
as though the laser on the CD were actually burning the CD each time it played it, which the lasers don't, but you could imagine that they might. That's what tone arms did. So they tried to make the tone arms as light as possible, which meant balancing them like a seesaw so that they did as little damage as possible to the record while still playing it. So what people would do if they got cheaper, rec cheaper phonographs is they would put pennies on the other side of the tone arm to try and um, balance it so it wasn't pushing so hard into the record. And so people would put three or four pennies sometimes, tape them to the back of the tone arm. Are you old enough to remember this? Yeah. Tape them to the back of the tone arm. If you guys ever write a novel or make a movie about the 1970s, this should be part of what your audience won't understand but will find cool. They would tape pennies to the back so that that would balance the tone arm so the tone arm wouldn't hit, be hitting the record as hard as it was. So that was a use that you could make of money. So you're not using it as money. However, you're using pennies rather than quarters because the quarters, that's real money that you're giving up to balance your tone arm. Whereas if you use pennies, it's only a few pennies and it's, it extends the life of the record. So, that, so that's household management is making sure that the tone arm is as light as you can make it and you're using money for that household management, but you're using it not as money, but as a commodity, as a thing that you can use. So money as a medium of exchange, that's not household management, that's between households or between people <coughs> who come from different households. That's money as a medium of exchange. What else is money used for? Yeah. Store of value. Store of value which is that the reason you might use quarters is that you would also know that you have emergency quarters on your phonograph if you ever need them. So it's the other thing where people don't go digging in couches and they know that if they ever desperately need money, they can go digging in the couch and look for all the change that's fallen down in the couch over the years. It does you very little good if you get the dime that fell out of your pocket into the couch, so what? but you know that if you leave it there and there'll be other dimes there that eventually there might be serious, not really serious money, but more serious money in the couch. So a medium of exchange and a store of value and what else? Third function of money. Aristotle may, these are close to each other, but not quite the same thing. They're also a bookkeeping device so that if someone owes someone else money that's a lot easier to keep track of than saying that someone owes someone else 14 pork futures which they can pay back with uh, 600 dozen eggs. So as a bookkeeping device it's whoever has the money is uh, might be owed or whoever is entitled to money is owed something and the amount that they're owed is the amount of money that they're owed. If you have money in the bank, if you're checking your bank statements, if you're doing, if you're Venmoing money to someone else or whatever, if you're getting a bill, all of that is a bookkeeping device. So those are the three, uh, three basic functions of money and the value that they store, the exchange that they mediate and the bookkeeping that they do are values and exchanges and bookkeeping, which are about what money 
can get you that's not money. So money there is something which gets you something which is not money. And that is, for Aristotle, what money should be used for. It's a relationship to something that isn't money. And what else would it be? That's what Midas, his relationship was only to money and only to gold, and that turned out to be a, a mortal relationship. He would have died if he hadn't been, hadn't had his gift taken away, the gift of, of the Midas <coughs> touch taken away. So money should always be in relationship to something, not money. But then you get, this is the end of the section from Aristotle, you get this question of interest, which is in The Merchant of Venice, which you guys read for today, and which Aristotle is describing here. Uh, last paragraph of what we read. There are two sorts of wealth getting, as I have said. One is a part of household management. The other is retail trade. The former, necessary and honorable, while that which consists in exchange is justly censured, for it is unnatural and a mode by which men gain from one another. So no one believes that anymore. That is, remember I quoted Zimmel for you, that <coughs> trade or exchange is a relationship where each person gets more than they give. So the point is that I have too many eggs and not enough bacon, you have too much bacon and not enough eggs. So if I give you eggs, I'm giving away something that I can't really use anymore because I have too many. And I get bacon, which I didn't have, so now I got more than I gave. I gave eggs, which, were, which even for my own household, were of far less value to me than bacon, which is more value to me for my household. You, in the meantime, had too much bacon, and now you get eggs, which you had too little of, so you got more than you gave as well. So exchange is a relationship where each gets more than they give. That's the crucial idea behind exchange. Aristotle didn't see that because what he was interested in was um, middle people, that is, merchants, those who would buy and then sell at a higher rate than they bought at, which is what being a merchant is. You buy eggs wholesale, you sell them retail, and you have gotten money not for something that you've produced, but only because you are between the egg producer and the egg consumer. And that's what Aristotle um, didn't like, that people would get eggs only in order to trade them for something else. Yeah. Aristotelian response to Zimbabwe. Yeah. So that's true in all the exchange, you know, so that each gets more than he or she uh, gives, or, you know, sort of is, is this true in exchanges that are to do with commodities like eggs, bacon, because, you know, there are diminishing returns down there. Like, I, I have too, many, too much bacon. Yeah, do people know what diminishing returns means? Someone define it? extra item is less valuable, like the one added extra, it's marginal, you know, to like, the, to, if I have one more bacon, it has less value than the first bacon, which is enormously valuable, and the second one is okay. Yeah, and a, and a standard way of seeing this is, is to say that if someone is poor, a dollar means a whole lot to them. If someone is rich, a dollar means a lot less to them, even though it's still a dollar, 
its face value is the same. It's a dollar. But for a poor person, it means a lot more than it means for a rich person. <laughs> so that's diminishing returns. The other term is marginal utility, mm. which is you were about to use that term, I think. And I think you kind of like gave a Zimmel's answer to my Aristotelian page. Okay. But, but then the, the, the thing is that the point would be that money, like say, if I am the owner of money and you need that money, uh, um, my money's value doesn't, you know, it's like with bacon, it, it, like you know, it's like it, the returns diminish more quickly. Whereas with money, if I keep it, I can always say, look, if you're not happy with, if you're not going to work for ten cents an hour, there, you know, people who would do that are dime a dozen, and then I'll just uh, <laughs> <laughs> a dime for a dozen people working a d for a dime an hour. Okay. Yeah, and exactly. You know, so, so you just uh, so that money because it doesn't uh, it, because it's a store of value which doesn't perish or diminish. That uh, you know that creates a situation in which some exchanges might still be and are seen as exploitative. Although of course the basic principle is that uh, you know sort of because its value diminishes less. And although you're right, for a rich person, a dollar means a lot less than it, or it should. But you know sort of like you know like sort of but it, but it, but nevertheless retaining and wanting to retain more of your dollar. Still makes sense in a way that wanting to retain more of your bacon doesn't make mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, but it's still if you're trading your bacon, you're then you're trying to get something from your bacon instead of just consuming it, and that Aristotle seems to think um, is naively speaking is wrong, um, and naively it's not wrong. Mm -hmm. However, because clearly people went to markets and they got stuff at, at markets, and in Aristotle's time they got stuff by paying for it. The point, though, is that people, middle persons, those who bought at one price to sell at a higher price, Aristotle saw them as doing something not honorable. Merchants who were intermediaries between producers and consumers were doing something that Aristotle thought was not honorable. And that is um, questionable because being a merchant is actually work. And merchants are doing work that that otherwise the producer or the consumer would have to do, and merchants are doing it um, presumably more efficiently. So they're trading their talents and their skills and their <coughs> capacities as merchants, as buyers and sellers, <coughs> and giving more. And others are getting more than they give if they go through a merchant. If you advertise on Craigslist or eBay then it costs you to sell something, to advertise on Craigslist, it costs you to sell something on eBay, but you couldn't do it without Craigslist or eBay. So you are getting a whole lot by getting access to other customers on eBay, and they're getting a whole lot by getting access to you on eBay that you never would have been able to connect up at all if that didn't happen, or the same with Venmo. Um, any place, anything that goes through an intermediary, the only reason you'd use an intermediary is that it's more convenient than not. So it's the convenience fee that you pay at the ATM. That's a lot more convenient than waiting the next day for the bank to open or going to your own bank's ATM, which might be three miles away, in order not to pay the 250 The 250 on the other hand, is really a lot of money for what they're giving you. So that's a borderline case, and that's also what we were calling rent-seeking. 
they're not, it's not costing them anything like 250 even averaged over time, to give you that money that you pay in a convenience fee. Um, so they're rent-seeking by um, asking for a convenience fee. Okay, anyhow, so all of this is narrow subtle, a kind of critique of rent-seeking, which is what, what's really going on here, a sense of the three functions of money. And then he goes on, finally, the most hated sort and with the greatest reason, that is, this is the most hated kind of retail trade and hated with the greatest reason, is usury, which makes a gain out of money itself and not from the natural object of it. So usury, beco it becomes something very strange. And that strange and hated, according to Aristotle. It makes a gain out of money itself and not from the natural object of it. For money was intended to be used in exchange, but not to increase at interest. And this term interest, which means the birth of money from money. So that's how Jowett translates it. And it's like household management. You may not get um, the meaning of that term in, in, in English. Why should interest, it does mean the breeding of money from money. But Aristotle is actually giving you an etymological uh, account of the word. In Greek, the word is tokos. The word that gets translated as interest is tokos. And tokos comes from a verb which means to give birth. So in Greek, what Aristotle is doing is he's doing the etymology of the word tokos, or interest, and what it really means is breeding. And it means breeding in the same way that Shylock uses the word breeding in The Merchant of Venice, when Antonio says, is your gold and silver ewes and rams? Do you remember this? And Shylock's answer is, I cannot tell, I make it breed as fast. So the idea of interest is in Greek an idea of reproduction, biological reproduction, of breeding. It means to give birth, money giving birth to money. And so when Aristotle says, the most hated sort and with the greatest reason is usury, which makes a gain out of money itself and not from the natural object of it. For money was intended to be used in exchange, but not to increase by breeding. That might be a better translation. And this term breeding or interest, which means the birth of money from money, is applied, now we get to the breeding of money, because the offspring resembles the parent Wherefore, of all modes of getting wealth, this is the most unnatural. So why is it unnatural? It's obviously unnatural for metal to beget metal. Um, do you remember Antonio's question to Shylock about friendship? So do you remember their argument? Those of you who weren't watching the Super Bowl but reading The Merchant of Venice? <laughs> Okay, so you will read The Merchant of Venice by Wednesday, right? Everyone is nodding sagely. Good. It's a great play. Notice when you read it the way metal is being treated. The word applied to metal is the word barren, barren metal. 
metal is barren. It's not like agricultural animals. It's not like sheep and ewes and, and lambs, or rams for that matter, which breed <coughs> because they are, as Genesis says, fruitful and therefore they multiply. So one way of distinguishing between natural objects of the earth, things that, are, that have use, is things that have use are not barren. And for agricultural economies, which are the first real economies, also hunter-gatherers, but for economies that are, that are, that are focused on consumption, on what keeps you alive, what keeps you alive is food. What you can't eat, as we know from King Midas, is metal. So what keeps you alive are things that grow. And things that grow are therefore things that breed. And so when at the beginning of Genesis God says, be fruitful and multiply, he's not talking to gold and silver. He's talking to animals and plants. And they can breed, that's natural, for gold and silver to breed is unnatural. So Aristotle says it's called breeding because the offspring resembles the parent, hence to give birth, to breed, because you have an <coughs> offspring that looks like the parent from which it is produced. But that should not be what happens with money because Money is A, not a living thing, but B, why should, not, why should the offspring not resemble the parent when it comes to money? Why, why is that somehow wrong when it comes to money, for the offspring to resemble the parent? Yeah? I mean, you would argue that you're making, you're not actually providing anything. Yeah. Money has exclusive exchange. Right. But I don't know, I think. Well, so if the three... I feel like you're providing a service by allowing someone to like, engage in like, present consumption. I think that's a service. Yeah, and that's something that we'll talk about, and that's the, that's the <coughs> argument about usury. And l let's just get, that, get to that in a minute, because it, it works in the Kawabata story also, which is a good introduction to it. Um, but the, if the three functions of money are medium of exchange, bookkeeping device, and store of value, none of those functions has anything to do with breeding. All of those functions are money in the service of something else. Money in the service of buying eggs that you can eat. Money in the service of buying eggs in the future if you save the money money in the service of I gave you eggs and you owe me this amount of money which eventually I will be able to use for one of the other two functions of money. Money is always a means to some other end. Money performs a function which is what it is a means to do but the function, all three of its functions are means to an end that are not monetary. And when money is used as a means to a monetary end, then money is producing money. And the reason that's wrong is that's not what money is for. 
Money is not there to produce money. Money is there to do the three things that are its function. So that's why the idea of money breeding becomes such an uncanny idea. And that's something that Marx is going to talk about as well. But it's not only Marx. There's something strange and weird and uncanny about this barren metal <coughs> reproducing itself, especially since its value is not in the way it can reproduce itself, but in the way it's used for other things. So that is what Aristotle and everyone else who writes against usury, what they're freaked out, of, freaked out about in usury. Okay, the Kalabata story at the pawn shop. Uh, did people understand it? It's a three-page story, four-page story, right? What happens in it, or was it so long ago that you read it that you forgot? Someone plot summarize it? Oh, this, this midterm is going to be such fun. Yeah, Jimmy. Um, so basically, this guy goes into a pawn shop, and he's trying to look at money. Oh, yeah, because he's going broke, I think. Yeah. Um, all right, so he's there, and then his boy is, I guess, he's like the, the pawn shop son. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Pawn shop owner's son. Yes. Um, and then he's basically saying, like, he's like kind of like offering money. Anyway, so while they're talking, this other guy shows up, and he's like, has like tuberculosis. <laughs> yeah. Like dying, his wife's dying. And he tries to pawn like a pair of women's hose. Yes. Pantyhose, I think. Um, well, not pantyhose, but the equivalent, yeah. Alright, yeah. Um, the story's from 1929, just to yeah. pre pantyhose days. Yeah. Pre pantyhose? Yeah. Oh. So, anyways, so what History. Yeah, so what ends up happening is that. Um, well, pantyhose is fake stockings, just so you know, historically. First, there were stockings, and then pantyhose was a really convenient way, even though it cost more because you had to use more material. Once the price of nylon went down, then fake then easy to wear fake stockings without all the problems with real stockings. Pantyhose did that for you. So then, um, so the kid doesn't want to take the panty, um, the stockings. Yes. Um, because he's like, well, he doesn't want to get sick, and also like, it's not really worth much. Anyway, so the other guy that's already there, he feels bad for him, so he gives him some money, and the guy tries to offer him stuff. He's like, no, no, you keep it. Um, yeah. So then after that, like this other guy shows up with like hundreds of yen, and I'm not really sure what was going on there. Like the kid tell, explains to him what, like he he wanted to pretend he was poor, apparently. Mm -hmm. But uh, I wasn't really like, I still didn't get why. Yeah, so, okay, so it's, a, so it's a very strange story. So just to tell you briefly about Kawabata, Kawabata was, is one of the great Japanese writers of the 20th century. He won a Nobel Prize uh, mainly for his novels, but this, this is from a book called Palm of the Hand Stories, and these are all stories that are two or three pages long, and they're just kind of, kind of these little revelations. So they're very subtle and very, very interesting stories. So, yeah, that was a very good plot summary with a puzzle at the end which is the question is, what do you pawn at a pawn shop? And the way pawn shops work, as you guys all know, is that you bring something, or do you know this? How does a pawn shop work? Has anyone ever tried to pawn some, something? I did in college, actually. They laughed. They offered me, like, nothing for what I was trying to pawn. Um, do you know how they work? There are pawn shops in Waltham. I mean, you try to, like, give them, like, money, and, like, no, you try to give them an item, and they pay you for it. 
Yeah, so most people think of pawn shops as a way of selling something really quickly. And that's technically not what a pawn shop is. So what a pawn shop is, both in Japan and the U.S. and in England, they're all over Dickens, is if you need money, you go to a pawn shop with something of value, which is a guarantee that you can repay the money. So if you have something of value, it's something that you could sell on eBay. Hey, we should start an e-pawn. That would be really cool. Um, maybe that could be a class project, and then we'd be rich in a year. Venture capitalists all over the place would be great. All right, so what happens is you have something of value which you're putting up as security for the money that you're borrowing from a pawn broker. So you're borrowing money from the pawn broker, and as security, you are giving them something which is more valuable than the amount of money they're lending you. And they lend you the money for a month, usually it's a month, and you have to pay it back with interest in a month. And the interest is usually, I mean, depends on what state you're in. I don't mean that you're desperate for money. That's not your state. It depends on what state of the U.S. that you're in or what country you're in. The interest is usually limited, but it's high. So it's a high interest <coughs> loan, probably something like 2 or 3% a month, which is 24 to 36% a year, which is very high interest mm -hmm. loan. And you get the money. And do you guys watch The Blacklist? There's a good pawn shop episode a couple of episodes ago. God, what do you guys do, read? <laughs> the Blacklist is just a, it's a show of genius. It's not a show of genius. It's really great bad TV. Um, that's what it is. Um, the last episode was actually really great. James Spader was wonderful. At any rate, you give them something of value, and you promise to pay back the money that they give you, that they lend you, on this thing that you've given them that's valuable with interest in a month. At which point, when you pay it back, you get your thing back. So you bring your guitar in because you really need money, and um, a month later, you pay the money back with interest and you get your guitar back. Yeah? Is there a scenario in which, like, they don't give you the item back? Like, could you just sell it for good, or would you not go to a pawn shop in that case? Well, so most people who go to pawn shops actually don't plan to get, to take back what they've pawned. So the idea is that you give them your guitar, and you say goodbye to your guitar. And they give you money, and then you don't expect, you know that you have a month to get your guitar back, but you don't actually expect that you're going to do that. And sometimes you go in not even thinking you'll do that. You just want to get rid of something um, quickly. And the idea is that after a month, you keep the money, and they get the item. And they then sell the item. So if you go to a pawn shop, what you'll see, there's one on Moody Street. What you'll see is a window full of stuff for sale. And all the stuff that's for sale is stuff that they had for more than a month, and that the person who took money for that stuff as, as security didn't come back to pay the money back with interest and get their item back. So a pawn shop is something somewhere between 
A pawnbroker is somewhere between a money lender and a merchant. He is officially a money lender, but is in fact a merchant. He is a merchant pretending to be a money lender most of the time. So yes, they would love to give you your item back and get the money, but they like selling it even more because they usually can sell. They usually only offer half of what they can sell it for as a loan. So if you bring in a $600 guitar, they will think that they could probably sell it for $150 because it's a pawn shop where everything is cheap. So it's a $600 guitar, which they think they can sell for $150, so they give you $75 for it. So everyone comes out ahead, or maybe everyone comes out behind. You get $75, they sell it for $150, they get $75 out of it, and someone who wants a $600 guitar gets a $600 guitar for $150. So either everyone's happy or everyone's miserable. It's not quite clear. Now, the guy who gets the guitar at the end is pretty happy, but everyone else might be miserable. So that's how pawn shops work. That's what's happening here is that if the tubercular guy can't pay um, the money back for the stockings, then the stockings will be sold. But the problem is how much, who's going to buy them? So the pawnbroker is only going to buy stuff that he can sell. That's the basic idea. So in comes a person. And what's peculiar about this story, this is where we get into literary ideas again, is that there are three transactions in the story that Jimmy went through, or three potential transactions. And they all seem to behave very, very differently. But the strangest of all is the last one, where someone is pawning an object of value, namely money. And what they're getting for the money that they're pawning is less money than the money is worth. Just as if you pawn a guitar, you get less money than the guitar is worth. If you pawn money, you get less money than the money is worth. And that idea that you would pawn money, that's the really interesting one. I actually did, I'll just tell you this, um, 10 or 12 years ago, I actually put a $10 bill on eBay um, for sale, and I actually got $12 for it because people got, got really interested in the idea of bidding for money and uh, there were a couple of people who got into a bidding war for my $10 bill because it made a good story. So what I actually, I made, eBay took 50 cents out of that or a dollar out of that, I forget what it was. I made a, I made a dollar, um, and I actually sent the $10 bill to the person who won it after I got a transfer of eleven fifty into my PayPal account. And what they got out of it was a good story. And I also got a good story out of it, plus a dollar fifty. So, uh, but that's a little bit what's going on, and we'll talk more about this. But read *The Merchant of Venice*. It's a little bit what's going on at the end of *At the Pawn Shop*. Mm -hmm.